You are listening to Lightning Strikes Thrice, a JRPG Games Club podcast. This is season six, fucking kill me. Episode zero, covering the generalities of Xenosaga episode one for the PlayStation 2, not the DS. I'm your host, Chris Taylor, and with me is... Promoted to second chair, Fletcher Arnett. It's a demotion. <laughs> Ryan Beatty, please kill me later. Bad Marcus, based guest. Yep, I am back temporarily. We're coming out of the depths of space because we have found a golden piss-colored obelisk of a podcast. <laughs> Welcome to Xeno Saga, part of the Les Enfants Terribles project, a series of three failed attempts to create a meta-series under three different publishers on three different console generations. Being the middle child, Xenosaga is the messiest bitch of them all, most of this centering around its sequels, so you won't hear about that for 12 episodes. We'll get there. <laughs> the shortest, most relevant version, Xenogears, a Squaresoft RPG, was cut down after massive overreach and kicked out the door. Many of the staff of this project left Square and founded Monolithsoft, uh, who would develop Xenosaga for Namco Ne Bandai. By the final game, the merger had happened. So Xenogears was intended to be part five of a seven-part grand narrative. Uh, when that collapsed uh, somewhere around disc two, uh, Xenosaga was an attempt to begin uh, the saga from the beginning with some sly nods to the original Xenogears. By itself, Xenosaga was supposed to be a six game arc. The whole thing went tits up so bad that depending on who you believe, Xenosaga's three games cover either parts one or part one and two of that greater narrative. And this is after the second game cratered so hard that the order got cut in half from six games to three. I have not played Xenoblade. I can speak to none of it. I don't know if it ties into this greater mythos. I did little research on it because I suspected not since it was originally going to be an entirely different thing. And an executive told them, Xeno is your brand. Use it. It's Ryan time. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily for you, Fletcher, I have played Xenoblade, and so I can tell you that there are a lot of callbacks to metaplot elements that suggest that Xenoblade Chronicles 1 and 2 are yet another retelling of pieces of the Perfect Work saga. Uh, but then also, Xenoblade Chronicles X is a separately related uh, in that it is not directly related to Xenoblade Chronicles 1 or 2, but also shares different metafictional elements with Perfect Works again. Uh, so it's it's a grand mess, and they're reusing the same meta story, but in slightly different permutations this time. Is the face tattoo an asterisk this time? Because <laughs> I know it was a plus sign in Xenogears. It's an X in Saga. What is it in works? That's a running thing? <laughs> yeah, that guy looks almost identical to a major villain in uh, Gears. Uh... So... Episode one, Der Wilser Macht, if you do not know, the will to power, it's Nietzsche, was meant to be the kickoff, and it had Chrono Trigger, Dragon Quest, Dream Team energy. On writing, Tetsuya Takahashi, a longtime Square artist and one of the writers of Xenogears, and his partner Soraya Saga, another artist and the co-writer of Xenogears. And when I say partner, I also mean the two of them are married. Character design came down to Koniko Takanaka, a former Falcom artist who became the Xenogears guy. 
Mecha design was Junya Ishigaki, a man who continues to make some of the most holy shit Gundam designs, being that he was the guy behind Wing, brought back for Unicorn. Finally, Yasunori Bitch I Did Chrono Cross Mitsuda was the lead on music, which makes the weird silences in this game even stranger. My man got the shaft real bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they were just like, um, just just write a few tracks for us. Yeah, we'll have other composers. And then they just didn't call any of the other composers. Not all the music yeah. is good. I disagree. I haven't heard any good music. There's some really brutal, like, oh, the one where they're just kind of like goofing off at each other music. The lighthearted stuff is just so cringy. Yeah. I like the track that plays in the intro cutscene. Oh, that one's pretty good. The intro cutscene track is sick. It made me think that I was going to get more good Mitsuda, and then we didn't really. Is that the one that sounds like a Metal Gear song, like when you're infiltrating Shadow Moses or whatever? It just has this sick-ass choral drum uh, that is very large and grand, and I'm into it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, generally not not as impressive as other soundtracks we've had on this show. <laughs> This this is true. And yeah, there are long stretches where there's no music at all, which is really strange for a JRPG. It cannot be stressed enough how hard Namco pushed this as a franchise. In the wake of Xenosaga Episode 1, multiple multimedia spinoffs rolled out, including an anime adaptation of the first game. Do not watch this. It's so bad. Uh, multiple cell phone side story titles and a full manga expansion. It did not go well. A brief plot summary before we get meeting next time. In the year 4767 TC, which means in this universe, transcend Christ, humanity has lost Earth, now called Lost Jerusalem, and are under the threat of alien beings called the Gnosis. You know, when you lay it out like that, it seems way, way more obvious, all the religious uh, implications of all these things. <laughs> Stuff that went like completely over my head when I first played this game in like 2001. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had to stop mentioning everything in my notes because I was like, wait, the whole side plot with Hindu mythology goes nowhere. It's just a reference they threw in. <laughs> Takahashi loves references to things. Uh, so amidst all of this, a uh, young scientist named Shion Uzuki is uh, putting the finishing touches on a gynoid named Cosmos. She doesn't know most of the features of this uh, android uh, due to the fact that the lead designer slash her ex-lover died in her arms years before in a accident. This leads to my favorite thing in the game. There's an NPC in the first section who will make up a bunch of wild sounding anime bullshit that you laugh at. Like, does the chest open to shoot black hole lasers? And then it all turns out to be true, lady. <laughs> uh-huh. So um, these two, the uh, the robot and Xi'an, they're going to change the galaxy uh, a lot in the next three games by uh, blowing up a lot of shit. As you might guess, this game goes very hard on religion, making Xenogears look apolitical in comparison. <laughs> Some of us have done various bits of research on different parts of this, and it will come up in discussion as we go. But also some of the symbolism is just way out there and no research or scholarly text will make it make any kind of sense. On paper, episode one is nothing but a refinement of Xenogears' combat and mechanics. Non-combat gameplay has you exploring space with a one character avatar, running around in the world until you enter combat. Meanwhile, the battle system continues to be three person parties, 
who can summon mecha with their own stats and skills, which each character pilots against larger enemies or in certain dungeons. But there's actually quite a bit of refinement beyond that if you start getting into the details. Yeah, the running around is weird because how far you move is tied to the frame rate, but the animation cycle speed is not. So when you put turbo mode on, like Shiad is just Baywatch <laughs> running down an entire hallway, but extremely fast. It's unbelievable. Amazing. Her walk cycle has like way too much like hip sway or something like like she's like twisting. It's a little weird. When she runs, it looks like she should be going so fast, like got like sprinter posture, but it's so slow. Yeah, not not going to lie. Uh, you know, this is what, like early PS2 or like early mid PS2. This is quite late, actually. This was 2004. Oh, I thought it was earlier than that. Yeah, this first game was four. Three is one of the last big crop. 2002 in Japan and 2003 in North America. So still within the first third of the PS2's life cycle. The animations of the characters are pretty stiff, like just in general, uh, especially that, that very first cut scene. Like there's some real awkward, like, I don't know how to use my body style <laughs> animations in it. Also, it looks like shit. Not that it looks bad, like PS1 graphic blocky bad, but like it is aesthetically repulsive. Yeah. Yeah. I think a thing that hit me watching a bunch of the cutscenes again to check details last night, it's the fact that nothing seems very textured. A lot of textures in this game feel flat. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's no shading. And some of that is, ah, it's space and everything is constructed by nanomachines. So it would be very clean and sterile, but it, gives the game a budget look in ways that they probably didn't want. Just the, the clothing designs are just ridiculous. Yeah, it looks like it came out of um, like an RPG maker uh, mid 2000s anime toolkit. There's nothing that suggests a unified or unique aesthetic at all in the game. And so it all kind of bounces off the eyes like Teflon after a while. If you thought she had looked like shit, wait till you see she takes off her coat and she wears has a distinct coat and top that both look like shit. Like I was going to say, like, they were so proud of her little like half jacket that like they show her like taking it off and putting it on in like the first part of the game because they're like, look, we decided to make it two separate parts. It's like, why? But also, I appreciate the hard cut to where the jacket is suddenly on because that would be a hard animation yeah. to pull off on the PS2. It is. Oh, absolutely. It's a hard animation, period. <laughs> yeah. It also struck me, and this isn't a knock against the game at all, but just like now that I'm playing it in my 30s instead of my teens, like just the amount of horniness that is built into the animations of the women is off the charts when there's no reason for it. Oh, yeah. Like the aforementioned Baywatch run and the hip sway. It's just like they are going for incidental boners. Wait until we meet the professor. Oh, God. <laughs> Yeah, the camera is definitely uh, very, very horny. The evil anime robot is extremely horny. <laughs> yep. The funny part is there are two of those, and it took me a second to realize which one you meant. I think it's called <laughs> Telos. Yeah, that is Telos. I was thinking of Dark Erde Kaiser for a second. Is that one also horny? Sort of. It, yeah, it, it's, it's horny adjacent at the very least. Get hype for the horny Gundam. 
it is kind of the horny Gundam, actually. Uh-huh. It's like you look at Cosmos. Cosmos is for the breast people mm-hmm. and Telos is for the ass people. And Dark Erde Kaiser is for people. I'll take your word for it. Okay. I want to let you know I appreciated your Sibian joke. It's fine. <laughs> so back to the battle system for just a second. Um, attacks are performed by entering actions, each one costing a certain amount of action points. Characters can attack until they run out of AP action points or until they decide to end the turn. If a character decides to end their turn with AP remaining, it carries over to the next turn up to their maximum and enables you to pull off a special tech attack or a combo. In practice, there's a whole lot more going on, which reveals itself over the course of the game. Outside of combat, encounters are not random, with enemies shown on the battlefield to allow you to avoid or ambush them via positioning or environmental traps. Your characters will early on gain access to a device that just blows objects up in the world to allow for progression or to control the environment and avoid some larger enemies. If, say, you destroy a small thing, a human can run past to flee a mech-sized enemy. Okay, this is a PDA plugin, which means that they ship PDAs that also contain guns inside of them. So, at least in the first game... Only Xion has it, and they do go out of their way to say, this is experimental, and you're only getting it because of the fact that you're in a crisis. It's so fucking wild, though, because that means that functionality exists in the thing that gets released to everyone in the first episode. Everyone just has a secret gun in their PDA. Dude, (laughs) just think about any kind of vector tech that we hear about through this game and then realize, wait, you gave that to civilians? (laughs) Seriously, it gets so much wilder. So you go to check your email and you just blow up half your house. Wait until the email lets you download a robot. Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh Uh-huh. You wouldn't download a weapon of mass destruction. (laughs) So there's a uh, a little Metal Gear Solid style uh, radar subscreen that uh, allows you to see where NPCs or enemies are. Uh, I believe NPCs are green and enemies are yellow. Shion is red because she's a disaster gay. <laughs> she is certainly a disaster. Uh, yeah, and there's a, a plug-in system uh, which gives you new abilities or toys in the form of mini games or the uh, the occasional new skill in the overworld or the game-long decoder side quest uh, in which doors that you find throughout the game contain potent rewards and all of them are locked with keys from like different areas and you need to remember which one goes where in order to uh, unlock and grab everything still better than the shadow hearts covenant side quests oh yeah well yeah covenant didn't have mr driller mr driller is my (laughs) fucking king i love him (laughs) i love that he specifically even in the english localization states he has fucking beef with Susumu Hori. <laughs> Hilariously, this game did not get added to the greater Namco timeline that actually comprises all their games. Okay, since we're talking about it, they send you emails that are ads for other games. I love that. Only <laughs> if you accept the emails from the guy who is going, hey, I've got some cool info for you. Can I have your email? That guy literally spams you with Namco ads all game. But you want to do it because you also get access to, like, I think some of the... Uh, uh, some of the investments or something. There there are other emails that are not related to ads that he sends you. Yeah. Baffling. It's incredible. Namco really tried to be like, we are here. We are a premier JRPG publisher, and we want you to remember, like Konami, that we have other games within the game. 
Um, once again, they were really pushing Xenosaga to be a flagship. Yeah. Uh, sub enemies are blind and find you via sound. So using the destroy world objects button instantly makes them just sprint at you so fast. <laughs> uh, there's an actual sneak trigger to use if you want to try moving softly near them without getting into fights. In battle, the eggs mecha, uh, which is AGWS, can be summoned for bonus firepower in human scale dungeons, but they'll be limited in how long they can remain. And you can't heal them across um, size scales. Only mechs can heal other mechs and only humans can heal humans with type specific items continuing the division. I think also there are only a handful of places where you can do like a full heal of the eggs. They get ammo and all that other shit. Yeah. Yeah. So like most of the time, that's just kind of like a global thing that you just kind of need to keep track of unless you have like a lot of uh, like repair items. Yeah, if you are not in a mecha-specific dungeon, the eggs are meant to be heavily limited so you are not spamming them every battle. You can't heal them with human party members. Technically, in this first game, I think only one character has a skill that heals a mech, and they highly cordon off what can affect what. So the HP and ammunition are draining every time you summon those, and if they go down in the middle of a dungeon, they're done. Mm-hmm. How many people can be in your party? Three. Or do you mean like how many is the entire layout in this game? I meant in a battle because I, I know you get at least Junior and Momo in this game. Offhand, just because you asked, uh, from memory in this game, you get Xion, Cosmos, Junior, Chaos, Ziggy, Momo, and I think that's it because I know Jin's game too. Is he the guy with the sword? Jin is the guy with the sword. Okay. You actually see him in this first game with a different voice actor yeah. because they hadn't locked him down yet. I remember Jin being extremely good in Xenosaga 3. Jin kicks ass. And he, he makes a cameo early in this game. He's the Karando of that game. Yeah. I mean, yes, very much so. Like it just like in terms of role he fills and how OP he is. And also the fact that he's like very traditionally Japanese. I think what you meant is a weeaboo. Yeah, I mean, well, he is Japanese by blood. OK, Karando's not a weeaboo because Karando is from <laughs> Japan, but Jin is definitely a weeaboo. <laughs> hey, just because Japan disappeared doesn't mean a guy named Jin Uzuki isn't Japanese in the year 6000. Shion uh, pretty explicitly states that he's a weeaboo. Oh, he's just yeah, reading uh, well, those yeah. weird old forward books again. Is that implied to be manga? Please have it be manga. No, it's actually a bunch of scrolls about the way of the samurai. No, that's less funny. So battles also have rows on both the enemy and friendly sides. These and positioning, there's a move command, will allow skills to target or chain off of multiple foes. Some attacks pierce or there's splash damage or just hit line for a row, etc, etc. The more a character attacks, the more boost they build up in encounters, allowing you to have an ally jump the turn order and move next. But enemies can do this as well, meaning that managing boost or watching out for turns that give bonuses is key to managing long combats. You can stock a max of three bars of boost per character. As a Final Fantasy X fan, ostensibly, <laughs> boost and turn order management is one of my favorite things that a JRPG can do. Oh, yeah. So I was a really big fan of the boost mechanic, at least in this early going. 
Another thing that happens every turn that needs to be managed is the event slot. Next to the battle info is a box that rotates through four states every turn, and it affects things that happen that turn. Yeah, so the uh, the four different states are, uh, there's a blank state, obviously, doesn't do anything. Uh, there's a crit up uh, where attacks and uh, not ethers have a 30% increased crit rate, and the crits are very nice in this game. They're like 250 it's really crazy, and it happens a lot. <laughs> like, it's it's not a rare thing to get a crit. God help you if a boss gets crit and has six AP, by the way, you're done. Yeah, oh. you need to watch for the crit up. Yeah. Yeah, that's, it's another way in which boosting is useful if you know that that's coming. Well, you know it's coming because it's in the same order every time. Yeah, it's in the same order every time. Mm -hmm. uh, boost up is uh, you gain dramatically more boost from actions that turn coin you either get two four or ten times the number of uh, points for killing an enemy that turn so uh you want to try to kill enemies that turn you want to use your boost gauge to cut in front of bosses uh in situations where that would be very bad like the crit up in particular boost up two because you gain almost no boost gauge except for when it's boost up and you gain two-thirds of it in one turn yeah you just constantly want to be using boosts when you have it um, so we briefly touched on combos earlier, but every turn a character gains four AP out of a maximum of six that they can store. Cutting a combo short by ending it early or killing an enemy in less than full hits means that you can save the remainder of the AP and perform longer combos or stronger attacks the next time. Managing this is the key to boss battles. The combo system is robust in that um, some attacks that you can do can only follow from other attacks. So like if I want to do my line attack, I have to do my melee punch first because the line attack becomes the ether option after that, right? You customize what combo finisher is based on the, the button combos, right? Well, I'm talking about like the, the second one, right? Like you're right. I don't know if you can manually change those around. Not in this first game, at least. Okay. Um, enemies will generally fall into three types, biological, mechanical, and gnosis, which are extra dimensional. This changes how effective certain skills are and different characters will excel at killing different foes. You also earn more than just XP and GP, which is your money. The game gives you ether points, tech points, and skill points after each battle, so participants can develop down all three of those trees in different ways the player sees fit. These unlock new spells, um, boost your stats beyond your standard level up gains, or command and combo moves depending on which tree you're in. The highlight of these early on is using your tech points to increase the speed of your tech attacks. Tech attacks are powerful moves that do the damage of about two regular moves. They come in two speeds, low and high, and they all start in low speed. Low speed tech attacks can only be done after two moves, meaning they cost six AP. High speed tech attacks can be done after one move, costing a total of four AP, so you can do one every turn, which makes a huge difference. So there's also the fact that uh, your menu is Xion's uh, PDA, and Xion is the main protagonist. Wow, you did not immediately switch your in dungeon avatar. You're a fucking cop. <laughs> no, I didn't. I did not. For what it's worth, uh, some characters do actually get different dialogue based on that. Oh, that's interesting. I'm not covering it. Yeah, no, that sounds like pain. Uh, you can send emails to NPCs or to dig deeper in the plot. Uh, and like 
I don't want to live in a world where every time I get an email, I get stopped immediately and asked if I should read it because I have fucking 1,000 unread emails in my work email right now. Jesus Christ. I'm throwing this out right now. I'm not mentioning every email in these notes. There's so many. There are so many. Some of the triggers are incredibly stupid based on you must walk X steps. You must go to this point during this mm -hmm. plot flag. You be, no, no, yeah. no, no. Hate it. Hate it. There are over 25 or very close to it on the Glendale alone. Yeah, I, I like picked up maybe like eight of them. Yeah, and they, they all do very different things. Uh, but there's also a, a giant glossary. So like if you ever get lost in the story, which is probably likely, uh, you can uh, catch yourself back up there. And if you are at the correct type of save point, a uh, selection of mini games is available through this menu as well. Also, um, there's a mascot like bunny thing, which it makes me think of the um, the helpers in Ghost in the Shell Man Machine Interface. Probably inspired. And its logo in the PDA screen also reminds me a little bit of the Laughing Man mm -hmm. from Standalone Complex as well. Don't read Man Machine Interface. It's bad and ridiculously horny. So time to talk about the, how good the glossary is. Hell yeah. So the glossary is super good. It's not just if you forgot what happened in the plot. Um, there are a lot of things that lesser games would explain in the middle of a cutscene that you can just go find out more about in the glossary. Like, who wants to know what the Hilbert effect is? Let's go read this, like, mildly interesting semi-technobabble explanation instead of getting it in a cutscene for three minutes. It does away with the 999 VLR problem of explaining the concepts over and over and over again in the text, which, you know, this game's dialogue is stilted for a lot of reasons, but it could be a lot more stilted than it is. Yeah, let's not say that they streamlined it and that things are going to flow naturally like humans talk. The cutscene with Virgil the first time is pretty bad oh. this. Oh, it's rough. But the Milchian Charter from 14 years ago says... <laughs> you know what the worst part about that is? Is that they never... There's no glossary entry for the Milchian conflict. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Why is that not in there? Because we're going to literally be in it at one point. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, if you do not see something in the glossary yet you should presume that you are going to get some explanation of it in the story. Okay. Right. In this first section of the game that I've played so far, it really bounces back and forth between like, wow, there's some clumsy uh, exposition uh, here. And then parts where I'm like, okay, there's some actually decent banter. <laughs> it's like really back and forth. It's really uneven. It's hampered by being a PS2 game. Where oh yeah. Clear that for, for blocking purposes, they had to like let each line of dialogue load individually. And uh -huh. so there are these pauses because of loading times and translation and, and blocking. And so it's like stilted in rhythm, even when it's not stilted in actual back and forth words. Although weirdly enough, they managed to go from like in engine to um, like rendered cutscenes like pretty quickly a lot of the time, like moments that like surprised me that it just transferred over so quickly without like a pause. Yeah, that doesn't happen very often. Um, it's almost Final Fantasy seven levels of seamless. Yeah, I get the feeling that. This game was denied one last optimization and cleanup pass, which is why some of it looks so sparse. But clearly early on, 
the transition from gameplay to cutscene was a thing they got down to the smoothest science, as opposed to how things will stutter going into the battle engine. Okay, speaking of that, when you go from the cutscene in the opening dungeon into the battle with the boss enemy, that transition is dynamic and not static because you can skip cutscene at any point and whatever is on screen will do the swirl. Those swirl transitions are entirely dynamic. Uh, my favorite yes. one is the one of Alan's face just go like he's getting sucked <laughs> into a black hole. Mm -hmm. Which is what he deserves. Alan will be the last thing you see before multiple boss fights as someone goes, Chief, no! <laughs> That's kind of his primary role. His primary role is keeping her alive. <laughs> He's the simp in chief. I did that opening battle for that ba boss battle four times, by the way. Uh, Why? Because when you're emulating it, all of the save points but one on the Woglinde, when you interact with them, actually just return you to the PS2 OS browser. F. Oh, wow. So you have to save state before you interact with them. Oof. Woof. Back to the actual notes here. Um, the, the story is regularly content to destroy locations permanently, but it gives you an out in the form of the Encephalon, a VR simulation that can perfectly recreate anywhere you've completed, allowing you to revisit previous locations for grinding, treasure hunting, or side quest purposes. Uh, this is actually hilariously like a simulated environment inside of Cosmos's brain, so uh, you definitely get in the robot a lot. So it's <laughs> technically just UMN space. The Encephalon does not have to be in a person, but you are going to do it inside people a bunch. I'm so mad at you right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. You're technically diving into the UMN, which is the internet, and also, minor spoiler, the collective unconscious. I mean, it's called Unis Mundus. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's called One World. This is how the game avoids creating an overworld because of this is just like a Final Fantasy 13, you where you are warped from like tube to tube. The closest you come to an overworld is the hub ship known as the Elsa uh, that you travel on for the majority of the game, and it is basically your Normandy. You're right, I should definitely add the word Mass Effect's Normandy. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, this, this uh, Xenosaga is going to be our Normandy beach. <laughs> well, guess what? We're about to storm it because let's go to the section of the notes that someone has labeled Piss World. <laughs> piss World. There's a thing that needs to be stated here, which is that the craziest person on the podcast is doing notes again this year. 
If anyone is joining us for this season, hello, my name is Fletcher, and I am a madman who does psychotic dives for research. I have played and replayed all of the following in preparation for these recordings. Xenosaga Episode 1, Xenosaga Episode 1 and 2, which is actually the name of a DS game, Xenosaga Pied Piper. What the fuck is that? That is the cell phone game about Ziggy. Is that cool? Honestly? The answer, I feel like, is no. Single best spinoff. Okay. But that's a low bar, right? <laughs> no, it's actually kind of cool and gives you a lot of context for the world that will... It will come up in the second game in the form of you can look at it in glossary notes. But if you mm -hmm. actually have it during this first one, it kind of makes some stuff more interesting. And I'm going to I'm going to put down some notes about it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Xenosaga, the animation. It's impossibly bad. I cannot stress that enough. It looks so gross. And Xenosaga Freaks, the PS2 visual novel comedy game that is played out from the perspective of the rabbit in Xion's PDA. Uh, I do want to huh. make it clear. I explicitly told Fletcher multiple times not to do this. Yes. <laughs> And it didn't stop me. Nope. None of the other hosts or guests will be asked to cover these because the vast majority of them suck. But the anime and one and two overwrite scenes in this and the next game. And so I have notes down because technically that is how these play out canonically. Also, we will be covering the pretty infamous censorship in this game when we reach the end. So please don't hound the other hosts about this. Finally, much like how Square kept doing international re-releases of their games with the English dub ported back to Japan until the HD era, this first Xenosaga did get an enhanced re-release in Japan, but it's weirdly broken? It added the English dub, but not the final one we're going to be hearing. Random parts of it seem to be using an earlier script revision where Realians were called synths, and a few line reads are different. Uh, the censored scenes were all ported over so Japan could see the incredibly weird edits that we made for the kids. Well, so there's one edit that I am glad was edited because it, we'll get it, there. We'll get there. Yeah, we'll, we'll, I can't believe Shion says a slur. I can't <laughs> wait to hear Chris defend censorship. Is, is, is this the Albedo thing? Yes. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's I, I will defend that censorship. Okay, I can't yeah. wait to put Chris on that. Don't spoil it. Don't uh, OK, OK. It. All I know is that, like, I I spoiled myself looking in the wiki for this game. And like I when I played this game originally, I got up to the final dungeon and stopped. So either I either I didn't notice this was missing or I didn't get to the part where it would would have come up. But yikes. Yeah. And yeah. finally, it adds some bonus costumes. Cosmosis is found in the first dungeon. You would have it by the end of the segment we played today. Momos is found in the end game. Good work, boys. So with that, I am out of things to blather about. Does anyone have any closing thoughts on the generalities of Xenosaga Episode 1? Mechanics I missed, etc. Like, I, I think that the one thing about the battle system that I noticed going back to it uh, now is that if you're in the middle of a combo and you've killed the enemy, it doesn't tell you, I don't think. No, it doesn't refund your AP. You just does it tell you like when it hits zero so you can end the combo early if you know to save the AP. Wait, you can end a combo in the well, middle? Yeah, because you, you can just do one attack. Yeah, you, you hit one attack and then you, you hit X and you're and you save your AP for the next round, right? Oh, 
see i'm a, i'm an impatient guy so i don't wait for the attack to happen i dial in the whole thing right away yeah if you don't do that and you know someone's going to be finished off in the next hit you can actually save ap that way because it okay. does yeah. not move until right. you enter the combo but that sucks because you're not guarding like no one is ever going to like one attack because like you take a lot of damage this game is hard by early oh. on by the way yeah i one attack all the time oh yeah um yeah. Because then I because then I set up a sick finisher afterwards. Oh, I just got <laughs> speaking of this game feeling difficult. It is really interesting um, playing this battle system, which felt really slow and frustrating and grindy when I first played it as a teenager. Now that I understand that JRPG battle systems can have depth and things that they're asking you to do in combat. Um, it's, so I'm having a much, much easier time with just the regular random battles. Uh, they don't feel nearly as slow as they did back before I understood JRPG battles. The animations are long though. <laughs> yes. Yeah. This is true. It is a slow battle system, uh, because of all the animations and all of the loading and shit, but it is not as slow as it could be because you can finish off enemies if you pay attention. Mm -hmm. At 200% yep. speed in turbo mode, it feels like a normally paced pest. So I think the thing you're both talking around is that this is a PS2 JRPG where because we weren't on sprites anymore and people now had experience with 3D, everyone was getting fancy with the animations, no matter what that meant for the length of the game. It, yep. Look, I'm not going to lie. It's cool every time you summon in a minigun and then just lay waste to a bunch of dudes. Oh, it looks rad. <laughs> oh, Pretty much every character gets at least one. Yo, this looks sick move. Shion's is like hella lame, though. That laser. No, thank you. Spellray. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's not cool. And you use it a lot. Like, I remember using Spellray a ton. Remember, you it's will so get long. Why don't, why don't you just make it cool? Come on. <laughs> um, so we all played this before, right? Like, what do you think about it now yeah. compared to how you played it before? Since we obviously don't have closing thoughts on the generalities of Xenosaga episode right. one. I was so in the pocket for this first game. I was obsessed with Xenogears. I was the kind of teen that, like, if you could make it convoluted and uh, thematically brutal, uh, I was I was a fan. If you were doing edgy things like referencing religion, I was a fan. Uh, and so I ate this shit up. But also, I hadn't, like, seen any anime uh, when I first played Xenosaga. <laughs> uh -huh. And now that I have seen more than one anime, every archetype, every trope is so loud. But it makes the plot of the game better instead of worse to see all the tropey shit and archetypical shit going on because you can see w exactly what they're going for. Yeah, it doesn't come out as, like, random or weird. Exactly. And honestly, how I'm feeling generally is that I'm glad I'm playing this for this podcast because uh, the pacing feels better if I have to take notes during <laughs> a board because I'm actually typing shit uh, when I when I could be spacing out. Um, so honestly, yeah, I'm a fan of this replay so far. Yeah, this is the most anime thing we've done for the show by like a long, long shot. But yeah, when I when I first played this, like for, for whatever reason, uh, I was really into it. It's one of the, like the few PS2 RPGs that I spent a lot of time playing. It was like this in like Final Fantasy X. But like Cosmos in particular was has just been burned in my brain as like this is a cool ro anime robot thing. And I just can't seem to shake it, even though looking at it now, I'm like, oh, it is horny in it. Like, it's just a little a little too extra. 
but like mm-hmm. you know the first time she summons like the fucking mini guns i'm still hyped for it like it's still oh, it's over Hell the top yeah. and it's sick um so like i i hope i have the chance to play through the entire thing uh, i still have my old save file it's like 42 hours in so like this is a relatively short game again like shadow hearts was it's not like a 80 hour epic but it feels long because these cutscenes are ridiculous xenosaga came originally in the absolute most depressed i have ever been like i just played all the final fantasies right before then and then played all of these and let me tell you 16 the perfect age for a game about religion that has a nietzsche reference in the title oh absolutely (laughs) also i agree in that like the other thing that general anime consumption has been additive to is that like none of the the animations are like kind of cool but they're ps2 animations but having seen a lot of anime you know what they want it to look like and your brain fills it in and you're like oh this is the coolest shit in the world and i have basically gazed through the fucking matrix at this i've done a tertiary replay of all three games by this point so knowing where things get to i am impressed with what they are laying down in this first one I have to re-edit my notes to make sure I'm not talking about material from sequels when I'm writing these. And you need to remember, when these first came out was roughly the time where I considered becoming a priest. So the religious symbolism and references did quite a bit for me. (laughs) Life could have been so different. (laughs) I know. I think about that regularly. It's commercial time. Do you guys have any commercials? Yeah. Bocono Stop, also on the Pitch Drop Network. Uh, Two versions of it. There's one for patrons only. Uh, We're still covering JoJo's. Are we going to be doing part four, season three? Okay, cool. You can't say we, Matt. You haven't been on that podcast (laughs) in months. Uh, But I'll be back momentarily. Also, uh, in the free version, uh, we are nearing the end of Cyborg 009, which has been a interesting experiment uh i think what are we gonna be doing next after that do we decide yet monster i don't know probably gonna do either monster it depends on how timing lines up or we might be uh mark john and i might be talking about g gundam instead oh right g gundam i'm totally in on g gundam i want to be there for that (laughs) uh oh yeah and uh, i think we might end up doing um some ghost in the shell movies for um for patrons only yes Brian, do you have any commercials? You're going to hear my one commercial in a second. Uh, but yeah, uh, you can you can follow me on Twitter if you want at WeepLord. Um, and before this season is over, I'll have a SoundCloud because I'll have new music out. And you can find me and the myriad of podcasts I record on, edit, and works I write at Hellscaper.com, which has become a repository for all of my stuff. May I suggest the pop punk podcast Gotta Get Out of This Town? which is becoming incredibly weird as we start breaking format more and exploring the culture of the 2000s, or, in our last recording session, the fact that Machine Gun Kelly, notorious failure of a rapper, decided to just switch genres entirely and do a pop-punk album in 2020, which we covered. That's a weird one. (laughs) I've been listening to that. Uh, Some interesting uh runs down memory lane uh i you know i knew that uh, sr71 song like it's been on my workout playlist for like years now and i just don't even think about it i didn't realize how bad that album was oh my god you can listen to ryan and i's new podcast lightning strikes thrice extreme by visiting our patreon at tentacle.pro 
and kicking in as little as a buck a month. Five dollars will get you the previously mentioned JoJo's podcast as well. Um, Lightning Strikes Thrice Extreme is like this podcast, but about Final Fantasy XIV, the MMO. It's better than this podcast because I'm talking half the time instead of 25% of the time. It's it's good. That's all until next time when we'll be talking about the opening cutscene through Escaping the Woglinde. Peace out, fuckers. See, See ya. ya. Bye-bye. Like I said up top, thanks for being a patron. Your continued patronage helps making these shows not be a financial burden without having to put ads in them. Since you're already a patron, you can help us out by reviewing your favorite shows on the podcatcher of your choice, telling a friend about our podcasts, or sharing an episode on social media. In case you didn't know, we have lots of podcasts. We have Being Jim Davis, a daily chronological Garfield comic strip recap podcast. Lightning Strikes Thrice, a JRPG Game Club podcast. Magmar Sucks, a show where we stack rank Pokemon based on how interesting their lore is. And last but not least, Boku No Stop, a podcast about anime and low-effort jokes. Thanks for being a loyal listener. We'll see you next time.